You know, over the last 22 or so years that Sydney and I have been together, um, unintentionally, we've sort of created this insider language, this, this verbal lexicon um, where we have these inside jokes, we have these inside phrases that, that give us this ability to say a lot to each other without having to say a lot. And so maybe, maybe those of you that are married have this with your spouses or you have this with your friends or your family, these almost verbal shortcuts, these things that you can say that maybe nobody else would understand it. In fact, maybe outsiders would hear you speaking with your loved one and they're like, man, they're so weird. They're so cryptic. Like, what are they talking about? But for the person that you're speaking with, there's absolute clarity. And so Sydney and I, we have all of these. I'll just give you one sort of embarrassing example. Uh, right after we started dating, uh, we learned pretty early on that we argue differently. Like we engage conflict differently and we recover from conflict differently. And so Sydney and I would have these moments where we'd argue and then we would forgive one another. And the moment we said, hey, are we good? Like, I'm ready to just go back to normal. Like, I'm like, we said, I forgive you like nine seconds ago. Like, aren't we perfectly good right now? And what we learned is that I recover emotionally a little different than Sydney. Sydney needs a little bit of time. And the, the language that she would use is, she's like, I need my five minutes. And I learned quickly that five minutes is symbolic. It's metaphorical. <laughs> it's, it's very rarely five minutes. She's like, hey, I need my five minutes. And so I'm always like, when's the five minutes up? Like, you know, like, when can I hold your hand again? Like, when, when are we good? And, and, and she's like, you'll know when you know. And I'm like, that does me no good. And, and so I'm not exactly sure at what point in our relationship it was, but one day we'd been in an argument. We're driving in the car. And she's looking out the window, trying to be as far away from me as she could. And uh, when she was good, she reaches over. I don't know why she did this. She reaches over, and with one finger, she gently and playfully scratched my hand. And by the power of the Spirit, I knew, all right, we're good. Like, we're, 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 we're back to normal, and all is good. And so um, that became this, like, little insider way of communicating. We get in an argument, we forgive each other, and then at some point, one of us reaches over and scratches the other person. And super weird, like... And sometimes, you know, like we'll, we'll have a moment of conflict and we don't get to that place of total peace and, and I'm driving to work and I'm like, oh, I'm good in my heart. I need to let her know. And I'll literally just text her, hey, love you. I wish I could scratch you. And uh, <laughs> we'll write notes, hey, scratches. I know what that means. Like, and for an outsider, you'd hear that and it's like, this couple is weird. My kids will find our notes someday after we're dead and they'll need therapy. They're like... <laughs> Dad wants to scratch you? What is going on? This is freaky. Like, what is going on? Like, what seems cryptic and confusing to an outsider brings clarity, and I would argue even closeness, to those that understand what's being communicated. And I kept thinking of that this week because here's what I'm convinced of. I believe that Jesus is a master communicator. That Jesus knows how to speak to the heart, that he knows how to see what's going on. He, he loves us. He knows how to communicate clearly, and he's not in the business of trying to confuse his people. He's not in the business of trying to be cryptic and to, to keep you guessing. If you're, he, he speaks straight to us, but sometimes when we read these things that he's spoken 2,000 years removed in the context of different culture, we can read some of the things that he said and it feels a little cryptic and a little confusing. And our temptation can be to check out when that happens and to go, hey, let's, let's go to something a little bit easier. But here's what I believe, this is true in the scriptures and this is true in life, is that the greatest treasure is very rarely found on the surface. That so often the best stuff takes a little bit of digging 
takes a little bit of like, hey, we're just going to have to go at it together. And what I believe is everything that feels cryptic and confusing to us in 2022 would have been really clear to those that were first receiving it. And so what I've been praying for us all week is, is that you would have the ability to not just hang in there, but to really mine the scripture for treasure this morning. Because this letter, out of all seven letters, I would argue has some of the most um, confusing, potentially, and uh, potentially some of those cryptic stuff in it. So I know it's just read, but I want to read over it again, because hearing it repeated is powerful. Maybe you want to close your eyes as I read this, or maybe you want to follow along on the screen or in your scriptures. But Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12, this is Jesus speaking through John. It says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right, these are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. Some of your Bibles say a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. I know where you live, the city where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those among you who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious. I will give some of the hidden manna I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord out of Revelation 2. If we were playing cryptic language church bingo, you would have just filled out your card. Like so many, so many weird things. Satan's throne, Antipas, Balaam, Balak, Nicolaitans, white stones, sexual immorality, new names, hidden manna. And it's like, I would argue that none of you woke up on Monday morning and went, I just want a fresh word of encouragement from the scriptures and went straight to Revelation 2. Because we're reading in on somebody else's mail, and at first, it's like, what in the world is going on there? And we're tempted to go back to the shallow end of things we easily understand. But Jesus is a master communicator. And I believe underneath the surface of some of this complexity, and I'm not just saying this, I really believe, is one of the most relevant messages to the church in our day. And I wanna just challenge you, hey, let's just hang in. Can we just like kind of pinky promise together this morning? Hey, we're gonna to try to hang in there together, see what the Lord says. And I believe that clarity's gonna come as we get a little bit of context. So let's start with a little bit of historical context here. And look back at verse 12. In this verse, Jesus is gonna give us a little context. He says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. And so Jesus is gonna do what he does in every one of his letters. He is going to give us some context right out of the gate. And this context really has three components. Jesus is gonna to speak to the church, he's gonna talk about the city, and then he's gonna give a picture of his position as the anointed one, as Christ, over the church in the context of this city. And the, the order of these things is really important. I want you to notice everything Jesus is getting ready to say to this church he starts by making it clear that he's speaking to the church. Look back at verse 12. He says, to the church. 
Jesus doesn't show up to the city of Pergamum and go, hey, let's talk to the culture. Let's talk to what's happening to the uh, with the non-believers. Let's talk about what's happening in the entertainment sector. See, this is really important because we live in a moment where Christians tend to be really vocal about what's happening in the culture, but we turn the blind eye to what's happening in the church. And I'm convinced that if Jesus were to show up physically in the city of Nashville to help clean up the city of Nashville, he would not start on Broadway on a Saturday night. He'd start on a church building on Sunday morning because revival always begins in the house of God. He goes, let's clean up our house first. Let's talk about those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus first. And so the context for everything he's about to say, you have to hear it through the lens of a loving, risen Jesus speaking to the church that he died for. He loves these people. He loves you. He loves me. He loves us. But the context is he's speaking to the church, and not just the church in general, not just any church. Look back at verse 12. To the church in Pergamum. This was, this was a historical city in Asia Minor, which is now Western Turkey. And so if you've been following us on this journey, a few weeks ago, we started in the city of Ephesus, and then last week we went up to Smyrna, and this week we travel 35 miles north to the city of Pergamum. Jesus is literally, he's not addressing these churches by the, their size or by their strength or by their holiness. The, the letters are literally just following the mail route that the post office would have literally taken to deliver the letters. This was the route in Western Turkey that they would have taken. And so we get to Pergamum. Pergamum was a significant city, about 20 miles from the Aegean Sea. It was about 1,000 miles above sea level, sitting up on a hillside with a huge river that cut through the middle of the city. If you want to just picture the city of Pergamum, I just imagine Chattanooga. You know, if you've ever driven into Chattanooga, and you've got that beautiful river on your left-hand si left side, and then you have all of the hills, and the city is tucked in, into the middle of it. This is what Pergamum was like. During the day that Jesus was speaking through John to Pergamum, they were the Roman capital of the area, which means uh, you know, Rome had what they were doing to the west, but in the east, Pergamum was the place of power. There was trade, there was education, there were political decisions, but the thing that the city was known for is that it was a hotbed for all forms of pagan spirituality. Just outside of the city, up on the hillside, uh, every temple, uh, every altar that you could have imagined to a pagan deity was there in Pergamum. They had the temple to Athena. They had the altar to Zeus. They had the first temple outside of Rome that was ever built to a Roman emperor called um, Augustus. About 30 years before Jesus was born, there's a temple built to Augustus. And if you wanted to fit in in the city, you had to burn incense to Augustus in the temple of Pergamum. It was, it was a complicated city to be a follower of Jesus in. And so this is the context. Jesus goes, I'm speaking to the church that's living in the city of Pergamum, a really complicated place. And Jesus goes, and I want to remind you of who I am that's speaking. He goes, I'm the one, look back at verse 12, who has the sharp double-edged sword. Now, I would dare to venture that most of us, this is not our preferred picture of Jesus. This is probably not the picture of Jesus that you put on the wall of that new nursery as you're getting ready to welcome home a baby for the first time. Jesus looking over their crib with the sword coming out of his mouth. Like, this is not the image that most of us think, but what seems cryptic and confusing to us would have been clear to them. Jesus is simply saying, he goes, hey, I'm bringing some words to my church in this place, and these words are gonna cut you both ways. They're, they're pointed, they're sharp. Some of them are gonna be encouraging. Some of them are gonna be discouraging. I'm convinced that if Jesus were to show up today at Ethos Church and deliver a similar message to us, he'd say, hey, Todd and Stacy, I'm coming and I've got some words that are bittersweet. 
Like you'd hear that and you'd go, oh, I know what he's about to do. He's about to say some things that will encourage me and he's gonna say some things that are gonna be challenging for me to hear. And this is the context of the letter. He's speaking to the church in a complicated city and he says, I'm coming with a bittersweet message, some of which you're excited to hear and some of which you're not. Now, was that so bad, verse 12? Like we made it through one verse, right? We got it. Now, I love this. So he's gonna start, like any good Southern boy would do, he's gonna start with the encouragement. And so he's gonna say, hey, let me, let me encourage you let me point out what you're doing that I'm so proud of. Jesus is speaking to them, and there, there's words for us in all of this. I love this, verse 13. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. If you're the type of person that takes notes, here's how I would summarize Jesus' encouragement to them. He goes, you live in a really difficult city and you have demonstrated unbelievable courage. That's the word of encouragement. He goes, you have demonstrated unbelievable courage in the midst of a really challenging city to be a follower of Jesus in. And there's so many things in, in verse 13. Jesus says, hey, the city that you're in is complicated. They would have known on Saturday nights, everybody in the city would, for the most part, show up in the middle of the city, and they'd participate in all sorts of pagan worship at the, at the foot of all of these temples and altars. They would, they would drink themselves into oblivion. They would sleep with whoever they wanted to sleep with. They did all sorts of public acts of indecency as moments of worship. In the city of Pergamum, if you wanted to be a successful business leader, you would go to the temple of Augustus and burn incense together. Jesus looks at him and he goes, hey, your city is really challenging, but he actually raises the bar. He goes, it's not just challenging. He goes, your city is currently the centerpiece of demonic activity. He goes, this is the place where Satan makes his dwelling, and this is another sermon for another time. You can go back and listen to what we taught on in the fall when we talked about the kingdom of darkness. But I'll just say it real quickly as a reminder, Satan is not the opposite of God. And here's what I mean by that. He is not omnipotent. Satan doesn't know all things like God does. Satan is not omnipresent. He's not in all places at all times. He's a created being who's worked across history with a whole minion of his leaders and his, his posse. And Jesus looks down and he goes, hey, your city's not just complicated. He goes, right now, it is the place, it is the centerpiece of demonic activity. Pergamum was the place where Christians from the region would be, would be brought to be tried and sentenced, many of them to death. And Jesus goes, you're living in the thick of it. And my encouragement for you is you have shown unbelievable courage in the face of this. You've shown so much courage in the face of persecution. Look back at verse 13. He says, even in the days of Antipas, my, 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 my dear brother, my witness, that was martyred in your city. Antipas was the, the prominent Christian leader of the day in Pergamum. And history tells us that he was arrested for his faith. They stuffed him inside of a metal bronze bull at the, at the feet of all of these um, altars and temples to these various gods, and they set him on fire as people cheered it on. I just want you to imagine the trauma that that would send you through as a follower of Jesus if the leader of the Christian movement in your city was persecuted like that. Jesus said, even in a season like that, here's his encouragement, you had courage. 
And guys, I think this is really important for us, especially in the American church, because if you talk and hang out with global Christians, like we, we are so often blessed with here at Ethos, we have so many from our global family that come in and out and visit with us. The American church is known for a lot of things, but we are not known for courage. Um, we tend to fold pretty easily, just a little bit of social peer pressure, and we're out. <laughs> and it's an, it's an important thing for us to sit at the feet of our brothers and sisters whose lives are marked by unthinkable courage for the faith. I think about Pius, who is one of our church planters in India. A lot of you have gotten to know Pius and his wife, Sharbani, and Jay Shuri and their team from India. And what I love about Pius is he is small in stature, but his courage is huge. <laughs> He's like 5'10", 140 pounds soaking wet, but that dude has endured more persecution and hardship almost than anybody I know personally. <laughs> and I love hanging out with him because he talks about it with such courage. I remember a conversation we had a couple of years ago where they had just started a new church in a village that had never had a, a Christian church before. And some of you maybe remember this story because we, we prayed about this as a church, but a group of Hindu extremists showed up at the church one Sunday morning and said, hey, if you come back here next Sunday, we're going to kill you and we're gonna burn your car to the ground and we will dismantle the church. And I was like, P.S., what did you say? I'm like, man, I'm like, dude, I'm out. Let's move over to the suburbs. Let's, like, I'm out. And I'm like, what'd you say? And I'll never forget this. He said, he said, I prayed for a moment. I'm like, okay, that's a good start. He said, I prayed, and then I told them, hey, if you're going to kill me next week, just save yourself the time and the gas money. Kill me today, because I'm coming back next week. I said, dude, what'd they say to you? And he said, they were kind of weirded out. They were freaked out because they thought I was crazy, so they didn't say anything. They just left. <laughs> and something happens in you when you're around a follower of Jesus that is marked by Courage. Guys, without getting into all of this, I really do believe in the days that are coming for us in the American church, we will need to learn how to pick up the mantle of courage again. It's gonna require some courage. And I'm encouraged when I look at the way that Jesus speaks to this church that's living in the thick of it. He goes, hey, I'm so proud of you in this. He goes, you have been courageous in the face of external challenges. That's the sweet part. <laughs> He goes, but this sword cuts both ways. He goes, let's get to the challenging words. Look at verse 14 with me. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and they committed, they committed sexual morality. Likewise, you also have those among you who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now for us, once again, this seems cryptic, it seems confusing, but Jesus is a great communicator. And he's speaking to them. He knew these people. He knew that they understood their Old Testament. He knew that they understood their culture. And Jesus is gonna take something from their distant history and something from their recent history to help them understand what it is that they keep compromising on. You know, we hear Balaam and Balak and the Nicolaitans, and we're like, what is going on? But it would be like someone in our day standing up and saying, hey, you hold to the social practices of the Democrats and the economic policy of the Republicans. And whether you agreed with any of those things, you would at least have some context. You'd go, oh, I think I know what you're talking about. See, Balaam and Balak, you go back to the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, Numbers 22 through 24, there's this unusual story about the way that this guy named Balaam 
partnered with this king named Balak to lead the people of God away through a variety of things towards idol worship and sexual immorality. And so for the rest of their history, this became like a verbal meme. It was a part of their lexicon for the people of God. When somebody was beginning to shift their beliefs and their behaviors, they'd go, hey, you're following the ways of Balaam. Subtle, slow compromise. In the same way, that the Nicolaitans, that was something from their present history. And that was a group of Christ followers that had started teaching this false doctrine that your body and your soul are completely disconnected things. And so you can do whatever you want to do with your body as long as your heart is still in allegiance to Jesus. That's what the Nicolaitans taught. So the Nicolaitans said, have sex with whoever you want to have sex with. Do whatever you want to do on the weekends. Burn incense to whatever God you want. You can do anything you want to do with your body. As long as your heart's okay with Jesus, you'll be fine. Don't you wish the scriptures were relevant? <laughs> like, I, I just read this, and, and Jesus goes, here's what I have against you. Now, I want to be clear. Next week, next week we're going to get into idol worship and sexual immorality. And so if you want to come back and have your toes stepped on, that'll be for next week. But the heart of what Jesus is speaking into right here, I want you to hear this. The heart of what he's speaking into, he says, in your church, you have some among you. Listen, this is the phrase. He goes, you have some among you who have adopted false beliefs that are leading them to sinful behavior that will cost them their relationship with me. And so the, Jesus is not just coming at them going, hey, you've got some people in the church that are doing things. He's speaking to the faithful, and here's his word of, here's his word of challenge. His word of encouragement was, you've been courageous in your culture. Here's his word of challenge, but you have been cowards with each other. You've been courageous in your culture but you've been cowardly in the way that you've dealt with each other. You have people in your midst, in your family, in your house church, in your small group, who have compromised their beliefs, who have compromised their behavior, and you have not loved them enough to call them higher. You've been courageous in the culture, but you've been weak, you've been passive, you've been silent towards each other, and Jesus goes, and I'm not cool with it. Guys, this is a word for us. We live in a moment, we live in a moment where we are so scared of being canceled that we have lost all courage to say the hard things in love. We live in a moment where we are so desperate to be liked. <laughs> we have lost the backbone to live in such a way that we love one another through hard things. In a church this size, I'm just telling you, in a church this size, guys, there is all kinds of sin going on in here. There are all sorts of things, false beliefs, false behaviors, that we've made peace within ourselves and we've made peace within one another. And we'll show up at house church and we'll go, oh, I, know, I know they're caught in this sexual sin and they're doing this and he's cheating on his taxes and they're doing this. And in the, in the cowardly 
you know, 2022 way of saying we love each other, we keep our mouths silent. We, we, we live in a moment where Christians are bold online, but weak face to face. And Jesus goes, I love the courage you've demonstrated out there. And he goes, oh, if only you do that with each other. He goes, there's some among you that are believing some things and doing some things that will not only ruin their life right now, it will rob them of their eternal future. And he goes, I need you to love them enough to jump in there with grace and community and love to deal with it. Guys, I was so cut to the heart this week as I was reading this passage because I just kept thinking about all of the moments in my life where I've been such a coward. And I'm not preaching this to you. If I was the only person in the room this morning, I'd be reading this passage going, Lord, help me with this. I read through this passage and immediately I thought about one of my dear friends who years ago, he had gone through a season of great hardship, pain, and disappointment, and in the middle of all of that, he was trying to make sense of the world, and he was wrestling with questions, and I'll never forget this. I was about 20 years old at the time, half my life ago, and I'm telling you, 20 years later, I'm still sitting in the weight of my cowardly nature. He and I are driving down the road, and he says, hey, in the midst of everything that's been going on, he says, I've decided, he says, I'm just gonna kind of do away with this book. He says, I'm just gonna let go of the scriptures. And he goes, and I'm just gonna hold on to one thing that I see through the scriptures, and that's love. And he goes, it's just all about love, and it's just love. And he goes, I don't need all of the scriptures. He goes, I just need love. And, and there's, there's an aspect of that's true, right? You know, God is love, and, and the essence of all of the scripture understand, is understood in love for him and love for each other. But what my friend was doing is, is he was going, hey, I'm, I'm disregarding the authority of God's word and I'm gonna become the interpreter of what love is and this is what I'm gonna do. And in that moment, riding in the car, in my heart, I knew like, I've gotta address this. But I didn't wanna look like the morality police. I didn't wanna look like the guy that didn't understand. I didn't wanna look like the guy that was hard-hearted. And so do you know what I said? I said nothing. And 20 years have gone on and his life is almost unrecognizable. And the shrapnel of sin and damage that's happened in his marriages and with his children and in his friend group and all of these things. And I've, I've tried to circle back in the years since with courage, but there was a moment that I had, a window that I had and I missed it because I was more interested in him liking me than I was in loving him. And man, when we need to be liked by everybody, it's hard to love people the way that God's asked us to love them because sometimes love comes with a word that cuts both ways that's bittersweet. And I didn't have the courage to do it. I just think about God's words to the prophet Ezekiel. He says, hey, when someone's stuck in sin and I send you to warn them, this is Ezekiel 33. He goes, when I send you to warn them, he goes, if they don't listen to you, he goes, that sin will still cost them. They will die in their sin. He goes, but I will not hold you accountable for that. He goes, but when I send you to someone to warn them in their sin, he goes, when I send you and you don't have the courage to do it, they're still gonna be caught in that sin. They're still gonna die in that sin. And he goes, I'm gonna hold you accountable. 
And I hear that, I go, man, Lord, help us. Help us to be marked with love and with humility and with strength to have the courage with one another to say what needs to be said, when it needs to be said, how it needs to be said. I know this is tough. Some of you are uncomfortable. Like, how much longer? Like, 10 minutes, okay? (laughs) But it's important. It's important. It's important that we love each other enough to call each other into the fullest heights of God's plans and purposes for each other. And so Jesus, he looks at him and he says, here's the deal. He goes, in one area of your life, you have so much courage. In this other area of your life, you've been cowards. He goes, but that doesn't have to be the end of your story. That doesn't have to be it. Look how it keeps going. He goes, so repent, verse 16. This is a beautiful invitation. He goes, repent, turn around. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Jesus is not trying to be confusing or cryptic. They would have understood it. They would have understood what he was saying to them. He uses these three images to describe something that they all were longing for. It'd be like if Sydney and I invited you guys to a big meal, we're like, hey, we want you to come to a big special meal at our house um, sometime later this year. And you're like, well, what meal? And I'm like, I'll give you a few clues for the meal. Um, We're gonna have turkey, we're gonna have dressing, we're gonna have cranberry sauce, we're gonna watch football, and you better wear your stretchy pants. Like, um, what what meal did I just invite you to? Somebody shout it out. Right, like, you know, like I just give those images and you're like, oh, I know what you're talking about. Jesus uses three images, they would have known. Secret manna. White stones, new names. Jesus was was giving them an invitation to the future wedding feast of the Lamb. He says, I know you're in a hard city. I know there's all sorts of pressure to cave into the culture around you, but don't forfeit your future for the moment you're in. Manna was what God used to feed the Israelites when they were in their season of wandering. Jesus was going, hey, I took care of them then. Don't you think I can take care of you now? Later on in the prophetic writings, manna was almost the symbolic centerpiece of the heavenly feast. Much like turkey is the symbolic centerpiece of our uh, Thanksgiving feast. Like Jesus is going, hey, I'm inviting you to a party where the food's never gonna run out. They knew what they were getting invited to. He goes, I've got secret manna. I've got white stones. This would have been so significant to the Christians living in Pergamum. When Christians were arrested and brought to the courts to be tried, the council would vote on the fate of a Christian. And if they were condemned to death, each of the votes would lay down a black rock. Can you guess what got laid down if they were set free? White stone. And Jesus goes, no matter what you guys are going through, he goes, I've got a feast that's never gonna run out, and in my blood, and in my life, and in my grace, when you stand before me, if you remain victorious, I will give you a white stone. You need to know that I'm not gonna sentence you to death. How beautiful. And he goes, and on that stone is a new name that's written. And there's so many thoughts on this. Is this a new name that God's gonna give you? Maybe. (laughs) 
There's some hints to that in the prophetic scriptures. In the context of the book of Revelation, we'll see this in Revelation chapter three, verse 12. It's not just a new name for the believer, it's also a new way to identify God himself. It's a new name for God. And whether you see this as a name for you or a name for God, here's what I believe the image is of this fresh manna and this white stone with a new name is God is saying, I am putting my name on you. You're my possession. You belong to me. Think about the way my kids do this. On Christmas morning this year, we gave our son Jack a new pocket knife. He's so pumped. Beautiful knife. Spent more on it than I should have, but bought him this beautiful knife. And as soon as he gets it, I kid you not, he runs over to our kitchen counter, opens up the drunk, junk drawer, gets a black Sharpie, and in huge letters writes Jack on this knife. And I'm like, oh, that's a way to deal with that. Like, that's a way to ruin something nice. But like, what, what was he doing? He's going, this is mine. This is mine. It belongs to me. And guys, here's the word of encouragement from Jesus to his church then and to his church now. Hey, when hardship comes, be courageous. And when you see things in each other's lives that don't line up with the gospel, be courageous. Because when you do that in love, one day you'll stand before me with a meal that never runs out. You'll be deemed righteous under the blood of Christ. And you will know all along that you are my special possession. Jesus goes to whoever has ears to hear. Hear what the Spirit's saying. And so I just want to ask you this morning, where, where do you need Jesus to give you courage? Where do you need courage in the face of something you're facing? Where, where, where do you need Jesus to help you identify and walk away from some areas of compromise, maybe in your beliefs or in some of your behaviors, these things you've made peace with over time? Where do you need God to give you some courage to have a loving conversation with somebody that you're in relationship with who loves Jesus, but they've lost their way a bit? And so here's what we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna come to the table. We're gonna receive the bread. We're gonna receive the cup. We're gonna be reminded that this is a foretaste of the feast that we will enjoy forever. And then we're gonna circle up and I wanna just encourage you to just reflect and to pray and to, to wrestle with whatever God is inviting you to wrestle with. If you wanna receive prayer, there'll be some men and women over at the Respond Banner that we'd love to pray with you. So let's stand up together and I'll pray over us and we'll go to the communion table. Lord, I thank you for the way that you love us. I thank you for the way that you speak just straight to our hearts. And God, this morning, I, I don't know where we find ourselves in the story. Maybe there's some areas where we need courage as we go out into the culture. Or maybe we need courage in our relationships with each other. But Lord, in all of it, Lord, would you look at Ethos Church and would you find us victorious in you by the strength of the Spirit, by the reality of your word? Would you help us, Lord, to, to live victorious lives with you towards each other and this city that you've sent us into? God, we love you. Um, uh, Holy Spirit, would you minister among us this morning as we receive the bread and as we receive the cup, as we fix our hearts on Jesus? Would you speak to us in real time and help us to walk in your ways? It's in the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.